Welcome to the Draw Shops Get Genius Podcast, where we talk to today's business influencers to pick their brain and pull out their genius. It's time to get genius. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another Get Genius episode. Today, I am speaking with David Stein, and he is the host of Money for the Rest of Us, which is actually one of the most downloaded podcasts for investing in the world. It's got over 6 million downloads, and it's about four years old, as I discover in our interview. But what's really interesting is that prior to launching his podcast, David was chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, which was a $33 billion investment advisory firm, and he co-headed the 21-person research group. He also co-founded the firm's $2.2 billion asset management division, where he developed its investment philosophy and process, and he was the lead portfolio manager. So he went from that to now having a podcast and getting a book deal. And it's it's really cool. He talks about living a life where it's like you're already retired, but still very much doing things that offer value and still making money and not really, really being retired as most of us think about it, where you just kind of retire, take your money and just do nothing, which, you know, some people say that sounds so lovely. But for most of us entrepreneurs, I think that sounds really boring. I know it does for me. David perfected his teaching style as an investment consultant to numerous not-for-profit institutions where he assisted the board and staff in overseeing billions of dollars in endowment assets. His former institutional clients include the Texas A&M University System, the University of Puget Sound, and the Sierra Club Foundation. He was the firm's primary spokesperson on financial markets and the economy, and he authored the firm's quarterly newsletter for close to a decade. And he has extensive public speaking experience. He's spoken at corporate events and he really just practices what he teaches. As you can hear from his background, you can clearly see why he is the perfect person to have such a podcast. We are going to talk about, you know, what it was like for him to transition into having, working in this line and then, selling a company. Actually, there's a really kind of interesting story there. I will let you listen out for that. What happened leading up to the sale of sale of the business and what happened afterwards and what that whole transition was like going into a podcast and how do you build a podcast after, you know, doing something that's totally different than you've ever done when you're used to dealing with clients all the time to now not doing that at all. He's got some really great insights on finances, retirement, working with partners, especially you know, when there's times that you may disagree, there's a whole bunch of, of wisdom that he offers that I'm super intrigued with. And it's funny because, you know, back in my early 20s, starting out, you know, the thing that excited me about money was making it. It wasn't so much about, hey, how am I going to invest? How am I going to plan? I thought, oh, I'll just leave that up to the experts. And in leaving it up to the experts, you start to really get excited about how you can grow money and what you can do with money. And it actually became something that I'm super intrigued with. And then of course, just running businesses, you know, how to manage your company finances, all of it just became super intriguing. So I especially love having guests like David on the show. I will let you listen to the rest of his complete genius and insight regarding all of this. 
Enjoy. Hello, David, and welcome to the podcast. So excited to have you on today. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. You know, there's so many things that I want to talk about with you. For one, you've had a really, really successful podcast, and it's called Money for the Rest of Us. So that, of course, piques my interest being a podcaster myself. You're also a genius in retirement, how to live like you're already retired, and and so many great things that I know are of interest to our listeners. You also know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. So there's a lot of things I'm going to get out of you today. So I hope you don't mind if I'm just, you know, extracting all of this information from you. Okay. (laughs) No, ask me anything. That's fine. All right. Fantastic. So first, you give us kind of the background of David Stein and, you know, how you started in your career and what made you passionate about finance and starting a podcast and where you are today? Well, sure. The only reason I got into finance is I I went to business school and a broker stood up and said, you can make $100,000 a year as a broker. And I thought, I'd like to make $100,000 a year. (laughs) So I became a finance major. And about three years in, realized when I took my first finance class as a junior, thought, why did I do that? This is boring. So I walked over to the engineering school and realized I'd have to start over if I wanted to become an engineer. So I went back to finance and then realized eventually that it's it's very broad. As with most careers, you can chart your own path. And so I got an MBA at Austin Finance, pretty much learning everything I should have learned in undergrad. (laughs) And then a few years into that, I was in corporate finance for a while. Then I got into a small investment advisory firm, about 25 people at the time, became a partner within... A few years, we sold it. Later, we bought it back. And that's where I spent most of my professional life up until my mid-40s. And at that point, in my mind, I was ready for something else. So I quit and my partners bought me out. And then a couple years later, I, I launched the podcast. And now I sort of kept what I liked about investing or that, that the, the investment profession, the teaching aspect, helping people, in this case, individuals. Before, I was mostly working with institutions, a lot of not-for-profits. But I don't have the stress of actually managing big portfolios now. And so and I have a lot more flexibility to travel and do what I want. So I I run the podcast and then I have an education site for premium subscribers. And that's kind of what I do. I want to go into the podcast. But before I do, I want to talk about, you know, where you were before you got bought out and you transitioned into having the podcast. Like you said, there's stress managing big portfolios. I'm curious as to being in the position that you were in. What were some of the biggest challenges you had being in that business and working with other partners? The fact that I had 10 partners, I was on our executive committee. So there were there were five senior partners and then there was a total of 15 partners. This is after we bought the firm back in 2005. We did a leveraged buyout. We borrowed a bunch of money. So people's homes and net worth were on the line and partners don't always agree. We don't agree on how to necessarily manage the partnership. We'll give you an example. So when we were considering buying it back, I had actually co-founded a product that had been very successful. And so it was becoming an increasingly large percent of the revenue of our firm. And we were getting a, a cut of that revenue as an incentive. And so we're at the table talking about buying the company back. And I and my partner, you know, sort of our team thought we should have a higher stake in the company or set it up as a subsidiary or something like that. And my partners were so set on fairness and equality, they just didn't want anything to do with that. And I remember at one meeting, I actually walked out along with his other partner and we were going to start our own firm. And I, I was all excited. I said, yeah, let's do it. And 
he was <laughs> my friend. My partner was terrified. <laughs> like, what did we just do? <laughs> and you know, we, we we worked with him, and then at the end of the day, we decided that's fine. Everybody will have an equal stake. I trust my partners. At the end of the day, I made the decision that I trusted them, and I worked with them for by then, you know, over a decade. And so, but you know, these things happen, and then you know, eventually, it got to the point where you know the the buyout went very very well. We were all kind of the same age, and and I realized that I wanted more challenges. I mean, I I wasn't there was no ad, more advancement in my career. I worked remotely for ten years, so it wasn't like I didn't have a boss. I could do what I wanted essentially. And, and part of me said, well, what else do you want, right? I mean, you have everything you could want in a career, and I just felt like there was something more. And what that more was is the ability, you know, as a partnership, you always have to say we. We think this. This is what we think, which is fine. But sometimes you want to say me like this is what I think. And so to be able to step away and do that. And that's been what's been great about the podcast is now I don't have to check with a committee to have them or even a compliance department to say you can say this. You can't say that. And that's been really refreshing. What was the journey like in starting up the podcast? How old is the podcast now? The podcast is four years old. Yeah, I started in 2014 and really kind of fell into it. After leaving my investment firm, it took me a couple of years to kind of figure out how I wanted to go about it. I launched several iterations of what I do now and immediately shut them down because I just didn't want I didn't want individual clients is what it turned out. I just didn't want that stress or even anything really to do with money. So it took a while. And because when you leave a career, a company you've been with so long, it's really like getting a divorce. I mean, it takes a while to kind of just find who you are. And so it was a couple of years later, I launched a podcast after being interviewed on somebody else's podcast and realized hey, that this is fun. And at least in the personal finance space, there really wasn't a whole lot of competition. So I just launched them I and I didn't I didn't bring an audience with me. I just built it slowly over time. And so I've done 200 plus episodes now and it's been four years. Going back to you said it's like a divorce. And I think that's so interesting because one of my questions for you was getting the company ready to be sold, you know, getting ready to be bought out. I think it brings up a lot of things that you may not have been doing the best way. I've noticed with fellow entrepreneurs who are in the process of selling their business or wanting to sell their business, they they may have had offers, they go through their whole deep analysis and, you know, discovering all these different things. And then a buyer may back out and it causes them to reshape how they do things. Did you guys experience any of that prior to your buyout? I did. So this was in the late 90s. So I'd I'd only been with the firm for years, but our our founding partners wanted to exit. So they, they set up sort of this next generation leadership team. We spent probably three years trying to sell the firm and had two deals with major banks on the line. And, you know, we'd, we'd go down and we'd fly down to Charlotte and go to New York. And, and it's exhausting selling a company because you're obviously trying to find a, a good fit. And, and then this, this bank out of Evansville was actually kind of odd. They bought us and didn't really do sort of the due diligence that these other firms did. But even I remember spending hours sitting in a conference room as we were reading the purchase agreement because you have all these reps and warranties that you do when you sell your firm that they can come back and sue you for. So we're right. we're going line by line through this contract to say, is that true? Is this true? Is this true? And so yeah, it does cause some self-reflection. And at the end of the day, in that case, we sold, but it, it turned out it was not a good fit. I mean, it wasn't, it's like, 
I don't even know why they bought us. And I even remember when they were buying us thinking, why are they buying us? And they bought us and didn't really do anything with us. And we went back probably three years later, we bought it back from them for about half of what we sold it for. So it worked out well. But it does cause self-reflection because it takes a lot of time to sell a business. And that's one reason why I wanted to leave, because I didn't want to go through that again, because it took so much time. And so with our partnership agreement, I knew what my buyout number was, right? You got X percent of EBITDA, essentially the cash flow to leave. got paid out over seven years. And it's like, all right, I'm ready because I didn't want to have to try to sell the firm again. And then it's been six years now. And what they they actually ended up doing an ESOP. So they've structured it so the rest of the employees have bought out the other partners is how it's set up now. So at the end of the day, it worked out for everyone. My last day at work, I was flying. I lived in Idaho. My partners were in Ohio. I was on the plane and I launched my first website, which was going to be an investment newsletter. And and I, I was really into it. I had fun building it. But right with, within about two or three weeks, I remember calling a friend in the UK that had left a big advertising firm to go on her own. And she's the one that gave me the divorce analogy. Here I was working and, and effectively had created the same job I was doing before because I had I had a track record and that I audited and, uh, for my performance in terms of the money management. So, I mean, I was effectively managing money virtually for people and realized, why did I step into essentially the same job and now I'm not getting paid? Yeah. And so that's that's when I shut it down. So it really, it does take a while. And and that was very eye-opening to me. And so eventually you, you figure out, and what I, you know, now that I've done the podcast, I've launched the membership site, I, I have model portfolios, for example which was, isn't that much different than what I had launched when I first left my company. But I found that over time, you know, as, as members or listeners requested things like, well, yeah, I probably could do that now, or I could do this. So I, I've slowly moved back in and be willing to take on assignments like that, but do in a way where I wasn't putting pressure on myself. There's the whole learning curve because you hadn't done a podcast before. How did you, you know, what were, what were your resources? How did you do this? Did you outsource? Did you do it all yourself? What was your whole process in, in getting it? And not just, you know, getting it up and running, but it's quite successful. How did you strategize that? This is all something new and different that you hadn't done before. One thing I did is I decided right off that, I mean, I did it all myself, but I didn't, I, I tend to be contrarian. So most podcasts were interviews and, I, and I've never really interviewed everybody, but I have spent many hours in front of college investment committees or other not-for-profits. So I knew how to teach and talk for 20, 25 minutes. And so I set up a podcast like that. Just just me teaching, telling stories. I have way more flexibility now. So it's it's a narrative-driven story podcast, but I'm teaching about money, investing in the economy. So it's a topic that people that are interested in personal finance, they want to know, because at the end, I, I knew I wanted to monetize the podcast some way. Right. And so I wanted people to trust me. And so... <laughs> I might, as long as I can make it interesting, if it's not interesting, they won't listen. But if it's interesting, then they're going to want to hear from me and not necessarily a bunch of guests because there are plenty of personal finance podcasts with guests. So that was one distinction. And then, you know, I think the other thing, I, two things helped it grow. One, I always answer emails. And so four years in, I, if somebody emails me, I answer them usually the same day because I get, I get way less emails than I did as an institutional investment advisor. And so I, I can handle a few emails a day from listeners or members because that's how they can, they're always, even today, I got a couple emails from people recommending books that I have not seen before that I'll read and probably do an episode on. And so that aspect was very important. 
And then the other aspect is just try to get better at my craft. You start out, I remember my first few episodes, I just couldn't get rid of the echo. I didn't know anything about different types of mics. So the mic I had just wasn't good, but you get better over time. I mean, even last summer, well, no, two years ago, a listener listened to me and said, hey, your podcast is great. You have a ton of white noise. (laughs) And so then I had to research, well, what's white noise? So, you know, I figured out how to do better editing and got software to do that. And then last summer, I'm searching for money for the rest of us. And some guy had a podcast where he would critique podcast. So he spent 30 minutes critiquing my podcast. And it was it was brutal. And he says, I mean, he, he didn't like the content. But what, what hit me, he says, he's a, he, how did he put it? He, you're, he's a breather and he has mouth noise. And I thought, <laughs> oh, gosh, how does one solve that? <laughs> Oh, boy. So, I mean, I and I figured out better software. Eventually, I hired a voice coach because I thought I went to podcast movement last year. And I was like, oh, oh, hi. I met a voice coach and we spent a number of months working together. It just was just over time. It's because some some podcasters don't listen to their own podcast. I always listen to my podcast because I want to hear what it sounds like and figure out how to make it better. And I think that's important. Oh, Absolutely. I'm guilty of that. There's times I do listen, times I don't. And I rely on, and it's probably just the discomfort of hearing your own voice, <laughs> but you know, I'll rely on other listeners and our producer to say, oh, you know, there's a little bit of echo going on or this is happening, that's happening. But I have been starting to listen more just honestly, just because there's so much good information that I want to hear it again. That's the other reason why is that I just get really excited about the people that we have on and what they've offered, or it always comes up in a conversation. And I'll be like, what was that? What was that that David said again? I'm going to listen to that. And then I realize, huh, that's pretty cool. I do, I do the same thing for myself, right? I mean, I'll, like, I don't remember saying something. And that's one thing I finally started doing transcripts. But eventually I've done it for my members because I don't remember what I said. And it was just easier to search what I said in old episodes. You say, you know, that answering those emails helped build your audience, which is awesome. I know that there's so many people, entrepreneurs that have like two times out of the week that they will answer their emails. (laughs) So it often goes days before somebody gets a response. But that's one of the things that you have said is answering your emails and getting back to people in a timely manner has actually increased your audience. Like Seth Godin, for example, Seth Godin will answer his email. Right. Still does. No, I don't write Seth Godin because I don't want to bother him because I know he'll answer, but just knowing he will. So, yeah, I answer emails just because I think it's a way to interact with the audience and get to know them better, find out what they're thinking. Right. And so it's it's always been a very high priority of me. It's just what I do. And it's manageable. It gets hard if you get behind. I still work you know, generally and I timed it just because my, my wife, the pro says you're working too much. But I, I generally work about 30 hours a week. So this is still part time. But, you know, within those hours, I make priority of answering emails and engaging with others. And and the way about podcasts grow, it's never been a big spike. It's always been gradual as individuals tell other individuals about it. And that's kind of how it grows, but it takes time. And I think that's with anything, you know, if you're blogging, if you're vlogging, if you're whatever kind of content, it takes time because you need to be really consistent. And as people start to see, wow, he's consistently giving all of this great information. Of course, you do want to share it. Let's talk about some of the things that you talk about on your show? What's the main focus? Well, the main focus is each week I get up on a Monday morning and realize I need to record a podcast the next day. So I'm always trying to find whatever I happen to be interested in, which is usually something related to money, investing the economy, something going on in terms of just how 
how the world connects. So, so much of finance and economics is, is so politically focused, right? People have kind of have this bias and I don't necessarily have a bias. My bias is how does money actually work, for example, whereas you know, just the fact that most money is digital, that it can be created out of thin air by banks. You know, most people don't realize that. Now, the banks create the vast majority of the money because it's just digits. You borrow money from a bank. All they do is you sign an agreement. So now they have a loan receivable as an asset. They just change the digits in your checking account. <laughs> yeah. That's how money's created. Now, that that's mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing to me. It's mind-blowing to others. Most people, including most politicians, don't even realize that. Yet, some people do. Switzerland voted this month. Because in Switzerland, you can kind of do, if you get, you get 100,000 signatures in Switzerland, you can put anything on the ballot to change the Constitution. Yeah. And they're voting this month to decide whether banks will no longer be able to create money out of nothing. So, I mean, this is, this is out there, but people don't realize that. Right. So those are kind of the things we talk about. In a world where money can be created out of nothing, what does that mean for saving for retirement? Or people worry about Social Security won't be there for them. Social Security will be there for them because the government can also create unlimited amount of money in, in coordination with the central bank. Right. So it's not a question of whether there's money. It's a question of as a, a nation or as a society, well, we have the capacity to produce goods and services that citizens need. That's what wealth is. Wealth is the ability to produce things. And, and that's what we do as entrepreneurs. We're producing things. And so as long as we and we have to get better at producing unique things so people hire us because with automation and robotics, it's going to be easier to produce things. But a lot of that will be commodities. And so we have to not be a commodity. Right. So those are some of the themes I kind of talk about in my show. It's sort of relate, you know, some philosophy, some investing, some just how money and the economy works. You talk a lot about retirement, which, like you said earlier, is a big, scary topic for a lot of people. And, you know, sometimes for entrepreneurs as well, who may not have, you know, may not work for a corporation that automatically has something set up for them, or, you know, some entrepreneurs that are have always kind of been riskier in their behavior <laughs> with money. What advice do you have since we have mostly entrepreneurs that listen to this show for those that, you know, maybe are younger, maybe even older that don't have something in place? What kind of advice would you give somebody like that who is quite risky with, like, you know, we'll, we'll just see what I make and that's what I'm going to that's what I'm going to live off of? I think most people won't retire in the traditional sense and probably shouldn't retire in the sense that. You know, you, you mentioned one of the phrase uh, I talk about on my show, live like you're already retired because investment returns will more than likely be lower than they have been historically. Mm -hmm. We have to save more. So you typically, ideally, we're saving 20 percent of our income for that day when we can't work, not when we choose not to work. Because what I have found is that most people, my neighbor is 93 and we, we spend a lot of time together and He's bored and he has been. And I mean, he does things, you know, he works on his yard, but, you know, he he says over, I admire that you have something to do every day. And there was a quote that Iris Apfel, she was she's a designer in New York and she was quoted in Money Management or Money Magazine last month. She's 96. And, and here's her quote. It says, for me, retirement is a fate worse than death. I've seen so many people, especially in places like Palm Beach, who work so hard in their lives and they come down here cold turkey 
and then one day wake up and realize how vacuous their lives are now. I mean it. It isn't funny. I've seen it with my own eyes. So I don't think I don't think people should retire. I think you want to structure a life where you're doing something meaningful that you enjoy, but that you can sustain into your 70s or 80s or in the case of Iris Apfel into into your 90s. Right. And often that means part time work because people don't necessarily want to stay at that same pace, but just not working at all. I I think people get bored and I I don't think people want to do that. Or should do that. My husband and I always say that we'll never retire. You know, you'll you'll do the the steps, take the steps you need to take to be secure. But in terms of retiring, I don't. You know, can't can't see that day. Because <laughs> my definition of retirement is the flexibility to do what you want. Exactly. Right. To have that freedom. And I did tell people. I mean, for a short period, I told people I was retired, and then they they just kept coming up with projects for me to do because I thought I didn't have anything to do all day. Right. So I don't I typically don't use that word anymore. (laughs) There's a couple of interesting questions that I want to ask you that I know is something that you have great answers to. So one of them is how common is it for business owners to see success in their company revenues while struggling with their personal finances at the same time? And why? Well, I think there's more emotion involved in your personal finances. I think sometimes even in the hedge fund business. So I, I've had very successful hedge fund managers join my website because it was completely different. Managing somebody else's money or doing a hedge fund versus coming and managing your own finances. And, and sometimes it's just psychological. It's just, I think managing your own money isn't that hard. We don't have to be, you just need some rules of thumb. And LaPro and I, we spent most of this winter traveling in the Southeast. So we stayed at hotels and Airbnbs and it's fascinating how many different type of shower fixtures there are in terms of how you how do you operate a shower yeah so many different whys but there's basics you know how do you get the water pressure on turn it on hot or cold and you get figure out how to get the faucet to work well investing is the same way i mean there's certain basic rules you know what drives investment returns you know how do stocks bonds but th- there's some basic principles that we can can apply and, and we shouldn't stress out so much about it right in terms of diversification for example just have as many different drivers of returns, public assets, private assets, find to own gold. You can own some cryptocurrency, you can own some stocks. The trick is to separate out speculations versus investments. Investments typically have some type of income component. So you can, because that's why they go up over time, because there's an income component. Speculations is there's usually no income and its success depends on somebody paying more down the road. Well, you don't want your retirement dependent on somebody paying you more down the road for some questionable asset that nobody really knows, like Bitcoin or gold. Right. So have more in investments, have as many different types of investments as, as you can get, have a few speculations and don't worry about, just don't spend so much time worrying about it. I think that's so great. And I know there's so much more that we can learn by listening to the podcast. You also have a website, moneyfortherestofus.com, which I'm sure links to the podcast. I'm going to make sure that we have all of that in the show notes and then in the blog post. I think there's just so many topics that we can learn from from you. Is it once a week? Yeah, once a week. Okay. So every Wednesday, every Wednesday. Awesome. If you had three pieces of advice for an entrepreneur who is just starting to plan for their future financial security, what would those three pieces of advice be? I think... Any type of entrepreneur, you realize that you can't plan much more than a year or two ahead. So (laughs) you, I mean, you can always save. I mean, obviously save as much as you can. That's important. 
you learn investing by doing. And so just like with any type of skill, you learn it by doing. And entrepreneurialism and investments is a journey. And so just enjoy the journey. Enjoy the, the feedback you get from your, your clients, you know, in terms of entrepreneur, that's how you, I mean, that's how I built my sort of little personal business here, just interacting with individuals and figuring out what it is that they wanted, what was I willing to provide and, and sort of a mix between those things. So just recognize that, it, yeah, it's, it's iterative and, and ultimately there's this flywheel concept where it's hard to push at the beginning. It seems overwhelming, just like investment and business, eventually that flywheel gets going, you get some momentum and, and where there's momentum, that's, that's what you want to ride is ride it where there's momentum. What's next for you after or alongside the podcast or is there, is there something or have you not planned it yet? Well, right. I actually just got a, a book offer from a major publisher to come out with a book. So now, so my, my focus now is to actually get the book Written and, and that's an example of things, good things that can happen from a podcast. Because "Money for the Rest of Us" was a book title that a branding expert, Bernadette Giwa, down in in uh, Melbourne, Australia, came up with. She says you should write a book. Here's what your title should be. And so I kind of wrote this e economy book and realized I have no audience or platform for this book. And so I just took the title of the book and called that the podcast and launched that. And never got around to writing the book or even finishing the book or publishing the book and had no desire to. But uh, an agent in New York, Lucas, contacted me and he listened to my podcast and he says, hey, you should write a book. I'd love to represent you. And so we, we, you know, we had some conversations. And so he kind of pushed me to do it. We eventually got it sold. And, and so now that's kind of my, my project. And it's been, it's been good because now I have four years of content exactly. that I can craft into a book. And I mean, I'll obviously write it differently. But one benefit of consistently producing content, be it a podcast or a blog, is it helps you clarify your thinking. It helps you understand what resonates, you know, what teaching style resonates. So this will be much easier to write because I know what works and I have a better sense for how to explain how to invest. It's an investing book, how to invest in a way that people can understand and resonate with. So that, that's my main focus now for the next year or so. David, this has been so great. So much good information. I just made note as we're talking here to make sure that I add your podcast to my list of podcasts that I listen to because I'm super intrigued by all of that and all that you have to offer. Really incredible story from what you were doing and what you're doing now. Also really inspiring because you really shaped the life of, you know, like you are living in retirement, a very fun and non-boring <laughs> retirement. I know that you travel a ton with your with your family and it's it's awesome. And it's a, definitely an inspiration. And I appreciate you so much being on the show. Oh, great. Thanks, Summer. It's, it's, it's been fun. Thank you for listening to today's Get Genius. You can learn more about The Draw Shop at www.thedrawshop.com on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Your home for kick-butt custom whiteboard marketing videos. Your ideas come to life. Thanks for listening. Please share, comment, and make any suggestions for future genius guests. Oh, <laughs>